I don't think what Israel is doing highlights anything new. I mean, we sort of know that punishment campaigns, just kind of carpet bombing, doesn't usually tend to lead to favorable combat outcomes. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vagomaradian, the same technology that lets Ukrainians defend their nation against Russian tanks was used by Hamas to enable its deadly and brutal attack on Israel. The spread of technology, the utility of air power, the future of U.S. high-tech weapons. We'll talk about all that and more with Dr. Caitlin Lee, who runs the Acquisition and Technology Policy Program at the RAND Corporation Think Tank. And we have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is advancing revolutionary engine technologies for this decade and beyond, and the XA100 adaptive engine is tested and ready to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Reports daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Bago, as we mentioned last week, congratulations are in order. The United States Air Force has a new permanent confirmed chief of staff, General Dave Alvin. I know that you were looking forward to his confirmation, and we send our best wishes to the chief for a successful tenure. We do indeed. It's about time, and let's get the rest of those jobs filled so we keep our fingers crossed. Jane's reports that Sweden is out of the Tempest Global Combat Aircraft Program. Now, officially, they're deferring their decision on a next fighter until 2031 while they figure a way forward. But mostly it's to see how the remaining partners structure the Tempest program to see if Sweden might want to get back in. But for now, officially, they are in hibernation on that program. The U.S. Navy awarded Lockheed Martin a contract to build six Sikorsky MH-60R helicopters for Norway. That's worth about $364 million. This is all part of Norway replacing its troubled NH-90 fleet. We've detailed the woes of that particular platform for some time on this program. If there's something coming in the air that you don't know what it is, hey, it might be a Kratos UCAV. They have released the first rendering of a stealthy, uninhabited combat air vehicle, a project they've been working on for a long time called Thanatos. We knew that the program existed. Now we know what it is, and it looks very much like a candidate to be the Air Force Collaborative Combat Aircraft. This is a podcast, so we can't show it to you, but Google is your friend. <laughs> Indeed it is. What about Boeing? Thank you for the segue, Vago. Speaking of Boeing, an interesting data point from a conference I attended this week Troy Rutherford, the MQ-25 vice president at Boeing, mentioned that over the last three years since COVID began, 50% of Boeing's St. Louis workforce has left and had to be replaced. Half their people. He's proud of the fact that they've simplified assembly on their major programs so that training new people is easier, but 50% turnover in any program is going to put a hitch in your get-along. Defense News reports that the Air Force Special Operations Command is considering whether to take the 105-millimeter cannon out of the AC-130 Ghost Rider. Not that there's a problem with the cannon or the plane. They're just trying to figure out what the role of the AC-130 should be in a world with proliferated air defenses. And Aviation Week reports on everyone's favorite little airline, Janet, 
Now, if you don't know Janet, if you've ever been to Las Vegas and seen a white 737 with a red stripe along the side, it is a small government-run contractor-operated airline that flies from Las Vegas to other places in Nevada, carrying workers to and fro. The contract to run the aircraft is up for bid. And if you have a couple of 737s sitting around or you know how to make them work, you too can fly to unknown locations. JJ, thanks very much for that. I'm going to get uh, your takeaways on the AvWeek conference, as well as a follow-up on something that uh, you reported on this program a couple of weeks ago. But just a couple of points. I remember in the early 1990s, writing about Janet Airlines. At the time, I think it was run by EG&G as the service support contractor for aircraft that were going out Mm -hmm. to a part of the Nellis complex. I had written a story about why some of the 737s after uh, Ron Brown's plane crash, actually didn't have voice recorders on it. Why well, didn't have voice recorders on it anyway? The story took me to writing about Janet Airways. And I don't know how much at the time had been reported on it in sort of 1993, 1994, or whenever I did that. But uh, what I remember was funny. And of course, it takes you out to the Groom Lake Complex, Area 51, and a couple of other places. I think it was a couple of months or maybe a couple of years after that, the Air Force confirmed that you know these installations are part of the Nellis Complex. But what I thought was funny was a friend of mine who'd read the story just out of nowhere sort of said like, yeah, that was really an interesting story, you know, and, and sort of like not committing, but it was sort of interesting. And then he parted by telling me like, the peanuts are pretty good. So I was like, let's rush with the Janet story now, which I hadn't thought about in like decades. And I do think it's kind of interesting about taking the gun off of the the gunship. Although, yes, in a proliferated air defense environment, it becomes a challenge. But for a lot of other places, it's still sort of an extremely useful capability. And the gun gives you quite quite a bit of range. But I remember that Donnie Worcester when he was head of Air Force Special Operations, was the the driving force behind putting the missile capability on the airplanes as well. You know, and again, another iconic aircraft like the U-2 and others that have had just an incredible run, but you wonder, okay, you know, how much more utility does it have in the modern era? And the Air Force itself is wondering how much utility it has in the modern era, which is why they're starting to change the 130 Ghost Rider. The question is, have they already decided what that new configuration is such that they're willing to take the cannon off now? Or is this the first step of the process rather than the last? Look, and in an era of loitering munitions and other uninhabited aircraft that you can put over a battle space to loiter and strike, right, to create your, you know, as we're going to discuss with uh, Caitlin in a minute, but you're, you're going to create your own reconnaissance strike complex in almost any airspace and do so with something that's not as complicated, as expensive, as, you know, incredibly well-trained, uh, and again, expensive to operate as an AC-130 gunship, which then becomes a limiting factor, right? Because we've never had as many gunships as we need, uh, oftentimes. Sure, but not only expensive, vulnerable. And I think that's part of the concern. Indeed. Uh, by the way, it's a very interesting data point on the turnover at Boeing uh, St. Louis because of COVID. And that plays into Ron Epstein's concerns, you know, that we discussed on Sunday's show about the NGAD story, about the capacity at the company to be able to deliver on some of these programs simply because of people. I mean, at the end of the day, almost everything we're seeing, whether it's fixing nuclear attack submarines, the Submarine League annual symposium is going on this, this year, which is just absolutely a terrific event of just a very professional force. Again, another force where it's 
high demand, low density, unfortunately, because of decisions we made many, many, many years ago. But you know, you don't have enough people to do it. So it, it it's kind of interesting whether or not you know Boeing is has the design horsepower, the capital to make good on Ted Colbert's promise. You know, hey, don't count us out. You know, we're we're in all of these programs and we're in it to win it. Let's uh, go to takeaways uh, quickly from uh, the annual Week conference, always an important event. You were a speaker. Give us sort of the top takeaways for the audience. The big focus wound up being on supply chain and on personnel, on how companies can execute. Lots of talk about increasing efficiency, relatively little about specific programs. I happened to sit on a panel that was discussing Aviation Week's new forecast for the global military aircraft market and commenting on that. But most of the focus of the program was how companies can do their jobs better rather than different things that they should be making. And let me ask you about the F-7. You, a couple of weeks ago on this program, uh, did some very good reporting and uh, said that we are on the verge of uh, learning about a new aircraft in the U.S. Air Force inventory, and that would be the light fighter variant of the T-7 trainer that is being uh, co-developed by Boeing and by Saab. Walk us through the program and what does it mean? Because Air Force officials now seem to be confirming it. What we knew at the time was that a small team had been put to work defining what an F-7 should look like. Well, we now have from other sources, an Air Force official confirming that there will be an RFI, a request for information going out to industry for the F-7. And of course, if it's going out to industry, it's going out to Boeing. No one else is going to have access to the data to turn a T-7 into an F-7. What we broadcast on October 12th has now been confirmed by the Air Force and the F-7 will live in some form. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Meradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. We're just camelling here. And in this next interview, you may hear a little bit of background noise, just some drilling going on near Vago's secret lair. We're sure it wasn't Chinese operatives trying to get information out of the program. Okay, we're not really sure about that at all. Joining us now is Dr. Caitlin Lee, who runs the Acquisition and Technology Policy Program at the RAND Corporation Think Tank. Caitlin, thank you so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure having you back on the program. Oh, very happy to be here, Vago. It is terrific having you back. You know, you joined us earlier in the year where we were talking about lessons from the Ukraine conflict, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But unfortunately, in the wake of the October 7 terror attacks perpetrated by uh, Hamas terrorists on innocent Israelis, Israel has mounted a a massive retaliatory operation. And so I've got two questions they want to ask in terms of both the capabilities Hamas used, which were breakthrough, highly nefarious, but You've got to give them some points for innovation here. And then Israel's response. Let me first start with what did you think was interesting in how Hamas managed to use its air power, you know, whether in the form of paragliders, taking out remote weapon turrets, and how they used air power should sort of remind us 
about a, the nature of surprise in operations and what indeed U.S. and allied forces can expect elsewhere in the world, right? Because if Hamas, given that Gaza is isolated, was able to do this, others with somewhat more resources could actually end up being more dangerous. Great question, Vago. And I think the number one thing just to drive home here is Hamas clearly got the message from Ukraine. And I think other terrorist organizations are watching Ukraine and getting the same message. And that message is you can achieve a lot of lethality with very cheap, low cost and easy to use technology. That's one. And two, you're going to be more effective if you can incorporate that technology in a combined arms campaign. And you got to have a lot of things to make that happen. But those are the two lessons. So I think what you saw with Hamas initially was this attempt at essentially combined arms. They came in with some drones to knock out security cameras and other sensing capabilities that Israel had. Then they backed that up with creative use of paragliders and then, of course, their rocket attacks to go ahead and blast through that border wall and start their offensive. What I think that was there was an attempt at essentially combined arms. And the thing Hamas has going for it is it does have the backing of Iran. And we know that Iran can also provide some of the things you need for these kind of combined arms operations, which is logistics and supply chain. And so, you know, right now Hamas is on its hind legs. And of course, Israel has sort of launched its counteroffensive. But I think what you saw with Hamas in that opening salvo was this initial attempt at conduct a combined arms operation and potentially draw on that Iranian support to get real supplies, logistics. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was also training and other things to support that. And so as this campaign evolves, one thing to watch is like whether Hamas does reconstitute and how they draw on that Iranian support to incorporate uh, low cost technologies uh, with some of the more sophisticated ones and some of the state based support to conduct their operations. So I do think those are the two big lessons. One, the low cost technology, but two, the way that you combine that with more conventional tech to achieve your objectives. The second question I have, the follow up is Israel's response. There is an international outcry and accusations of indiscriminate damage to a place with 2.4 million people that is the most densely populated in the world. Everybody understands that Israel has a right to defend itself and indeed hold those who perpetrated this violence to account. But in general, you also try to minimize as best as you can civilian casualties. Israel maintains that it's doing that. On the other hand, there is a humanitarian catastrophe unfolding. And indeed, unfortunately, questions about the efficacy of air power, the notion that it is a blunt force tool, that it is not the precision tool that certainly the United States and its allies employed in trying to counter ISIS, where strikes were much more judicious in the way they were applied. And indeed, you know, some army friends of mine remind me, see, Vago, there you go. Air power is just a blunt force tool. And the way you got to do this is just get on the ground and go block to block, house to house. What is the air power lessons that are being learned here? And does this change how people perceive air power at a time when we have always sought to make the case that this is a weapon that can be used with extreme precision and try to mitigate as much as we can casualties? Understanding in this particular case, right, Hamas is operating from under mosques, hospitals, and a whole bunch of other places to complicate the targeting picture. Great question, Vago. And I think this is sort of a time-tested and age-old question for air power. You know, what's its strategic effect and how is it best employed for strategic and operational effects? And I, I don't think what Israel is doing highlights anything new. I mean, we sort of know that punishment campaigns, just kind of carpet bombing, doesn't usually tend to lead to favorable combat 
outcomes. You know, Robert Pape wrote his book decades ago now, Bombing to Win, where he kind of just went through back to World War II and looked at these different air campaigns and said, look, when the goal was punishment, it's not really clearly that there's a correlation between those punishment campaigns and, and sort of success on the battlefield. So, you know, I don't think it's a, a terribly effective approach. I understand the sort of emotional reaction that anyone would have to what Hamas did. But I, I'm not sure from just a brass tacks, you know, strategic calculus that this kind of campaign necessarily is going to lead to Israel getting the best possible sort of outcome. And I don't think the history of air power suggests that it will. On the other hand, you know, trying to do very precision strikes in an urban environment and then having like hand to hand fighting on the ground, also very difficult. Echoes of Iraq, Fallujah in 2007. Like, that's not fun either. I mean, these counterinsurgency battles are very hard. And I think there's no real perfect answer. And I think it's a little unfair to say, oh, you know, see, look, the air power failed. Well, I would like to see if they had taken a different approach and the IDF was in there going house to house, how well that would be going. I think that would also be a difficult fight. We all know counterterrorism operations are very hard. And so I don't think there's any sort of a silver bullet here. But certainly just to say, see, this is a failure of air power is to kind of grossly oversimplify what's going on there. You mentioned earlier that Hamas had learned a lot from Ukraine. And what we're seeing in both of these conflicts is the democratization of technology, individuals being empowered by having access to systems that have actual combat effects. Traditional defense planning focuses on fighting organized counterparts that look more or less like our units with some of the same strengths and weaknesses. How should militaries look at trying to negate the advantage of individuals fighting them and is there a technological solution that can help in that effort? Great question, JJ. I actually think what militaries should do is try to take a page from the Ukrainians' book. State-based militaries like the U.S. and our allies and partners should be doing more to leverage these low-cost commercial technologies. I think on our side, that's something that we can really use to our own advantage. Conversely, I, I think it's kind of interesting to note that, you know, I mentioned Hamas kind of attempted this combined arms operation at the start of the offensive. And ironically, I mean, this kind of signals to me, and I'll be interested to see how this shakes out sort of globally in the coming years for terrorist groups. Do they actually all start to look more like that and try to do more sort of combined operations, more sophisticated operations kind of based on the lessons of Ukraine? I actually will be curious to see if there's this weird inversion where terrorist groups sort of move more toward uh, trying to be more combined and trying to create their own sort of indigenous supply chains and sort of local, quote unquote, industrial base, while at the same time, state-based actors like the U.S., our allies and partners, we try to be more like these terrorist groups that have the inherent advantage of operating at the very local level. Like, can we leverage commercial technology? Can we get guys making things in their garages again, like we actually did early on with UAV development in the U.S., as you all well know? It's going to be really interesting and kind of strange to see how these trends develop over time. But I think clearly the U.S., you know, we're going to need our fifth gen fighters. We're going to need our bombers. We need these things mostly because our pacing threat is China and the geography, the Indo-Pacific and the nature of the PLA just really force us in the direction of needing some pretty sophisticated military assets. At the same time, there's clearly value in having lower cost commercial assets and especially being able to sort of share those with allies and partners and even engage in some agreements and, and cooperation where perhaps some of the at least the spares and other parts of the um, lower cost technologies, if not the technologies themselves, are built on our ally and partner shores. So I think 
we need to be embracing that. And we also need to be ready to counter it. And to your point, of course, whether terrorist organizations start to adapt a more sophisticated approach to employing their drones or not, clearly those drones are going to present a challenge to us. And they already do. Iran, you know, launching drone attacks at our bases and oil facilities in the Middle East. We've seen some very sophisticated tactics with drones on both the sides of the Ukrainians and the Russians, and then the countermeasures that both sides have adopted in terms of electronic warfare. Well, I think the U.S. really needs to push on that counter UAV piece, uh, really look at things like directed energy, get really sophisticated about how they defend against these drones. Just seeing the Russians put essentially chain link fences around their artillery to protect them from drones. And so I think for the U.S., it's both harnessing that commercial technology to get low cost and then also being really vigilant about developing like a no kidding counter UAS strategy, because I actually think our adversaries and particularly non-state groups are going to get better and better and more sophisticated in terms of their tactics for drone employment. And they're also going to figure out how to partner with some of these uh, nefarious state actors like Iran and Russia to get those drone supply chains and logistics trails going. That's fascinating because you're really talking about two ends of the technology spectrum. On counter UAS, it's pretty high technology, except for the part with the chain link fences. But on the low end, where you're saying that the U.S. military should learn to perform these kinds of operations, would that be a good role for, say, the National Guard to work with people in communities to pick up these skills and also to create an industrial base for UAVs, small combat UAVs, if we need them? Yes, I think there's a lot of absorption capacity in the National Guard that's untapped right now, even for current generation drones like Reaper. And I think the U.S. could be doing a lot more to push on that and using the Guard for those kinds of things. So absolutely agree with that. And I think it's really important. And, and then from a counter UAS perspective, too, I think the Air Force has a role to play. I mean, officially, counter UAS belongs to the Army. But the truth of the matter is... U.S. air bases are particularly vulnerable, and especially in the Indo-Pacific, to all kinds of threats, whether ballistic, cruise missiles, or increasingly drones. And so I think the Air Force needs to actually play a more active role in the counter-UAS space. I mean, that's like kind of a hot take, but I think the Air Force needs to kind of stand up and say, hey, yes, the Army has the lead, but we have these air bases that are highly vulnerable to these threats, and we, we need to actually play a role in our own air base defense. Let me pull on that for a second, right? You said that obviously, you know, everybody's got to learn lessons from from this conflict. But what we're seeing in terms of the cycles, right? And, you know, the chain link fence answer is sort of the hillbilly armor uh, mm -hmm. response, right? But at the end of the day, it works, right? You'd rather the thing explode somewhere over your head or not be able to get that close to you in the meantime, because what we're finding on both sides is uh, in order to operate drones, you've got to be forward. And the Russians are steadily outsticking, unfortunately, the Ukrainians with their new generation of Lancet capability. They're putting the Shahed into mass production as well. Mm -hmm. And if the Russians can be trusted, they'll figure out a way to Im improve it. What is it, Caitlin, that the U.S. has to learn in terms of cycle time. I remember many years ago, the, the two Royal uh, Australian Air Force group captains who were leading Project Jericho on the part of the RAAF chief, right on terms of the future of warfare, would talk about advantage in warfare is, is no longer going to be you know, measured in years you know, or decades. Uh, it's going to be hours and minutes, actually, or you know, days. What does this tell us about the nature of advantage? And innovation cycles, because the Ukrainians are showing whether it's like paper drones or counter drone capabilities, right? I, I interview some of the Ukrainian and Polish and other counter drone folks, uh, and they say, 
I mean, this system will be good for, you know, a couple of months tops. Uh, yeah. You got to throw it out and field something else. That's not in our mindset. How is it we need to be adapting from what we're seeing in terms of actually cultural and philosophical approach? Yeah, I think what you've seen in Ukraine is just the ultimate sort of example of the measures, countermeasures fight that you always see in war, where where sides are going to adjust as tactics and technology change over time. And so Ukraine's been a really sort of neat case of that. But I think it's sort of child's play compared to what you might see in a war between great powers. I think things will move even much faster than that. The measures, countermeasures fight will be measured in like potentially minutes or or hours because you're going to see a lot more, I think, software and AI start to come into play and things are going to move even faster. And so, you know, one side's going to adjust their software and the other side's going to adjust it in response. And it's going to be these incredible feedback loops and reaction times that we we could potentially have never seen before. So I think absolutely what we've seen is adaptation and war is still a thing it always has been but it is moving faster you know in ukraine you are seeing that uh, something's only good for a couple of weeks because because the russians have adjusted their ew but i think moving forward that's just going to become more acute because we are going to see software uh, sort of start to change the game more i don't know if that's going to be tomorrow or next year but i think in our lifetime we're going to see wartime measure countermeasure dynamics really speed up I want to go back to the Hamas campaign. The mm-hmm. The challenge that Hamas is posing, right, many kilometers, if not hundreds of kilometers of tunnels under the most densely populated place on the planet, right, using the civilian population as human shields, installing rocket launchers under mosques, uh, for example, right, to be able to put your adversary in the untenable position of then becoming the brute in this conflict, even if it is trying to execute as you know responsibly as possible a campaign to root out an organization that is viewed as an existential threat uh, and exacted a horrible toll uh, mm-hmm. holding civilian you know civilians hostage in these underground tunnels what are some of the lessons that can be learned from this because it is not the only adversary in the world that is likely to try to use you know any and all of these techniques even the chinese play shell games with some of their equipment we don't know where it is right you know the notion of organized bases and maritime militias the blurring of lines gray zone warfare what are some lessons that can be learned from this in terms of how to apply air and military power in a combined arms sense and to try to do it as responsibly as possible and if not, then as some Israeli theorists have posed, you know, you just have to have a very strong legal justification for why you may have to blow up a hospital as problematic and challenging as doing something like that is. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really hard questions. I think they're ones we struggled with for the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I think for us, the answer for the United States and our allies has been that we are going to comply with the laws of armed conflict and international humanitarian law. You know, we're not we're going to do our best to avoid attacking civilian targets. We're not going to hit, hit hospitals, at least not intentionally. We've made a decision that we didn't want to do those in, in that conflict. I think the thing that can change, it, it, I think it depends on the objectives and what the war is being fought over and how sort of existential that war is perceived to be. I think as you go up sort of that escalation ladder, and if you're talking about an all-out World War III context, I think you could see that some of these considerations that we had in Iraq and Afghanistan regarding civilian casualties, they may go by the wayside, depending on the sort of 
existential nature of the conflict and uh, the perceived stakes. So I think there's an important distinction to be made between sort of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism fights, uh, where you have an adversary that's really hiding among the population versus a sort of true state on state conflict where it's essentially a war against the entire population and and potentially a war over stakes that are fundamentally existential. And I think in those kinds of conflicts, you could see a lot more civilian casualties. We spoke before about how technology has empowered individuals to take part in combat, but there are some super empowered individuals. I was at a conference this week and heard the assertion that essentially what Ukraine had done was to create its own JADC2 using Starlink. Starlink belongs to an individual. It can be shut off with a word. What kind of technology policies can be brought to bear when private individuals are able to affect the outcome of conflicts by withholding their proprietary technology? That is a great question, JJ. And I'm not exactly sure if I have a great answer because On one hand, I think really America's great advantage, particularly against our adversaries who have communist sort of mercantilist, you know, systems that are really kind of chain up their innovation in some ways. And I think what the U.S.'s main advantage is, is that we do kind of try to create this environment and foster this environment where uh, the private sector can really thrive and with capitalism and an open markets. And so for me, You know, I look at these new technologies, for example, artificial intelligence or, you know, you mentioned Starlink or any number of others. And I think, wow, that is that's so cool. Like, of course, that happened in the United States. You know, innovation is just something that we've done very well for a very long time. And we kind of have created all the conditions with our government and our democracy and our economy to make that happen. And so I am very, like, reluctant to rein all that in. At the same time, I do think, you know, of course, new technologies may need some guidelines, policy guidance, governance frameworks, and oversight. And I think there's a really delicate balance to be achieved there, especially with some of these technologies. I know you asked about Starlink, which is something that's currently deployed. But if I can diverge for a second, I think especially with some of these technologies that, like, really aren't there yet. For example, large language models where, like, we have ChatGPT, but we don't actually have generative AI yet. And there's already sort of calls to regulate that. And, and for me, it's sort of like, well, let, hold your horses. Let's let's actually understand what we're dealing with here before we immediately jump to the need for oversight and regulation. So that's kind of my broader take on it. And then going back specifically to Starlink, I think there, there there's definitely a room and, and some need for some government partnership and discussion with the private sector to figure that out, especially in wartime. You know, are there certain agreements or, or things with the Defense Production Act that we need to put into place to work with the private sector on these things? So I, I do think there's some need to kind of investigate the role of government in partnering with private sector or having agreements in place so that we can leverage those technologies in wartime and not actually have to actively worry about not being able to use them or the private sector throwing it down the Trump card to say, no, you can't use them at this time. Caitlin, in response to uh, JJ's question about Ukraine and indeed their ability to sort of self-form the joint all-domain command and control system, right? JADC2 is the holy grail. We've been pursuing it. We even added a C for coalition to it to bring our allies and partners into it, which was a concern a couple of years ago. The U.S. Air Force has been trying to move arguably more aggressively than the other services. I don't mean that disrespectfully, but after conference after conference, it appears that there appears to be somewhat more progress on the Air Force side. How do you characterize the progress being made by the services, by the Air Force, in trying to get to this goal? 
because it doesn't look like they're following a joint staff template. It looks like they're following individual service templates, but in a manner that can then be integrated, right? It, it seems like almost two parallel efforts. There's the OSD or the joint staff effort. Then there is what the services are doing, which seems to be, I mean, I joked with some of them, you know, it's like a sum is dotist, you know, sort of underground network to help us get to that level of capability. And I wanted to get your sense on the progress we're making because, you know, Dave Goldfein's original idea that this is actually among the most empowering things we can do remains true. The question is whether we're actually getting any closer to being able to better integrate our forces, uh, the legacy force, the way, you know, or the existing force, the way we need to, to get more value out of it. Yeah, that's a great question, Vago. And I, I worry about JADC too. I just haven't seen a lot of tangible progress on the concept uh, to date. Um, and yet I think these command and control networks are really critical, especially for sort of high-end fights um, where you're going to need really fast reaction times. And so it's, it's actually something I worry about a lot. And as you said, there do seem to be these kind of competing efforts that the Army, Navy, and Air Force all have, and then a sort of DOD vision and no, no technology, no sort of like equivalent of rubber on the ramp, right? What is the successor to JSTARS? You know, what is that going to look like? I mean, JSTARS is an incredibly important asset that we use for air to ground surveillance. Like, what is the next thing? And, you know, going back to Starlink, I mean, maybe part of the answer is something like Starlink, like having proliferated low Earth orbit satellites sounds like a great idea, especially if you think you're going to be in a highly contested environment where, China is going to be jamming your, your comms at all times. You want to have that redundancy. So I think some things like Starlink could be part of the answer. A lot of people seem to put a lot of stock in space-based GMTI, you know, but is that really a thing? I, I don't know. And so I think there's little bits and pieces there. I do think like low Earth orbit uh, satellites have a lot of potential, but it's concerning to me sort of the lack of coherence on JADC2, given how incredibly important it will be, like in a, in a high-end conflict, how incredibly important it will be to be able to um, sense the battle space, um, identify targets, and, and prosecute them. Uh, so it's definitely something I worry about. Finally, with these wars already engaged and hot, let's see what we can do perhaps about heading off the next one. When civilian technologies like quadcopter drones can be used to significant military effect, do export controls wind up losing their meaning? It seems a more difficult prospect to deny civilian systems to individuals than it is to deny military systems to countries. Yeah, and I think the genie is really out of the bottle when it comes to export control for one reason, because the U.S. has had this missile technology control regime in place for so many years, which has this presumption of denial in terms of exporting our current generation bigger UAVs. Um, so things like Reaper and previously Predator, they're just really hard for us to export um, because State Department just basically says no most of the time. And so other states have gone and filled that void. China makes its own sort of Reaper equivalent. Of course, Turkey's gotten in the game. Iran makes a lot of drones, Russia. So other countries are, are kind of are, at the state level are hopping into this. Now add to that that you can buy DJI drones on Amazon, put mortars on them and use them to drop directly on top of tanks and get like a solid kill. That just makes export control, I think, all but impossible. And so I think really what we have to just accept is that the commercialization of technology is going to make it much more available, lethal weapons much more available to both state and non-state actors. I know that's a bit of a grim take, but I do think that's the reality. 
Caitlin, if I can ask you uh, one more question, and it's about the execution of FAXX, NGAD, and collaborative combat aircraft. You know, we had Dave Alexander on, and we've had a couple of folks on talking about that program. It now appears that the FAXX, the Navy's program, is going to be before the Next Generation Air Dominance Program, before the NGAD uh, downselect, whereas the impression was the Navy was starting a little bit later, was going to end up on the backside of this, not on the front side of this. Just like the Air Force was going to pioneer the collaborative combat aircraft capabilities that then the Navy was going to piggyback off, off of. Are we getting the order of these things right? And from your standpoint, what's the right way not just to execute you know, NGAD, FAXX, or FAXX and NGAD, but also how to execute CCAs in this context, whether they're for reconnaissance, strike, air-to-air, I mean, what, whatever the different iterations, you know, electronic warfare, whatever the iterations are. How, what's the order in which we should be doing this if we want to really be successful? Because it would seem to me that the NGAD is the linchpin of this. And that FAXX probably should come after it. And just like CCA, you know, Air Force variant or what have you, right? How, how do we need to be thinking and sequencing this for success? No, that's a great question. And I think, you know, my impression was that uh, the Navy and the Air Force were actually working closely together on their sort of loyal wingman programs. And I, I hope that's a ca- the case. I think part of the the ongoing like sort of struggle I've had in understanding exactly how those programs are moving is that, you know, a lot of it is obviously very close hold. But I think, you know, I do hope that there's a strong partnership between the Navy and the Air Force thinking about this loyal wingman technology, because that's a that's the fundamental thing that needs to be figured out is what is the sort of command and control and communications relationship between the manned fighter and the unmanned asset, whatever it is. And so that seems like a framework that both services should be using to think about this. In terms of the Navy moving out quicker, I'm not sure I have like a, a specific druthers on which service moves out quicker. I think they both need to move really fast. I think the whole problem here is that the military balance in the Indo-Pacific in particular is a, has eroded and that the U.S. needs to find ways to offset its uh, significant capacity shortfalls vis-a-vis China. And so I think drones are a really important way to do that. And I think we need to move very quickly to sort of filling gaps in our force structure with a new generation of drones. If the answer is CCA to do that, and that's what we need to do, I think we need to move forward on that very quickly. And so any kind of indication the Air Force is slowing down is, is, is not good to hear. Um, my other big question about all of this is how it fits in with Replicator. You know, it seems to me there's two very different visions for what next generation drones are going to look like in the Department of Defense. On one hand, you have Replicator, which is Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks, um, an effort that she announced a few weeks ago, which aimed to build, I think, something like a thousand drones within 18 to 24 months, uh, build and field these drones, autonomous drones that are commercially available. And to me, that suggests sort of this um, Ukraine model of, of buying smaller drones in very large numbers and leveraging commercial capacity. Then on the kind of the other end of the spectrum or leaning that way, is sort of more the Air Force or Navy vision where you're talking about a much more capable asset. I think the Air Force put out an RFI for an engine and the thrust class between 3,000 and 8,000 pounds. Uh, so a much more capable unmanned system uh, that would actually partner with a fighter kind of flying in that sort of like 0.8 Mach range, you know, having more payload capability, you know, having a longer range. And so I think those are two very different and competing visions. I think there's a place for both of those in US force structure. And I kind of think we need to move out quickly on both. 
So I guess I kind of want to have it all when it comes to drones. But I do actually think because we're facing some real serious disadvantages in the Indo-Pacific, and I think we can offset them with drones that can reduce risk to air crew, potentially reduce costs, uh, you know, in terms of fielding new force structure. I think they're really the way to go. Um, I, I just want to say, I don't necessarily know if the Air Force is going slow. I'm sort of interested that the Navy is going to come first. And that, you know, I don't know if it concerns me, but right, we all know that NGAD has been something that we've been working toward for some time now. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I mean, having been started under, you know, at the time under Secretary Kendall uh, when he was ATNL, that is now bearing fruit. And so it's it's interesting. But I completely agree with you on the need to be able to field this stuff fast. Uh, and, uh, you know, although I do think Replicator and CCA can, can coexist, even even if they're slightly different kinds of capabilities, ultimately. I think they can. I just think DOD needs to find the resources to devote to this, even if it means taking some resources away from other weapon systems. I think it's a really, really important priority to sort of get after these force structure challenges uh, we have in the Indo-Pacific theater. Indeed. Without democratized technology, podcasts themselves would be impossible. (laughs) Dr. Caitlin Lee, Director of the Acquisition and Technology Policy Program at the RAND Corporation. Very good to be with you again. Thanks so much. Thank you both. This is great. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.